Welcome to the Lucina podcast featuring highlights of the literature from Archives of Disease in Childhood. This is the April 2016 podcast. My name's Robert Scotcher. Now, molluscum contagiosum is a very common skin rash that we see frequently and isn't something we usually get too concerned about, although it understandably concerns parents. The unmistakable lesions are something all paediatricians recognize and we usually just reassure parents. We often find though that um, others have recommended various treatments that we're somewhat skeptical about. We know it's caused by a virus, its own unique kind of very harmless pox virus and it's very contagious, often passed between siblings. We usually leave it well alone, but in the United States there is a trend for treating it. So researchers at Johns Hopkins uh, decided to review 170 cases retrospectively that had presented to a dermatology clinic. The mean age of diagnosis was five years. They found that about 27% had received some form of treatment, and the types of treatment was broad, including topical antivirals or locally destructive procedures such as cryotherapy. They found interestingly that it appeared to be more common in atopic children, although it's not an atopic condition, uh, particularly those with atopic dermatitis. And this could be just because uh, alterations in the skin integrity or immunology make them more susceptible, or it might just be that these children are more likely to attend a skin clinic anyway, which isn't something the authors seem to have acknowledged. Anyway, Regarding the effects of treatment, they found that complete resolution was seen in 12 months in about half and within 18 months within about three quarters. Now treatment made no difference um, and it was it got better anyway whether or not it was treated and it didn't seem to make any difference whether the children were atopic or not. So I think we conclude from this that we've been right all along. A treatment doesn't help. It can be unpleasant, expensive and is clearly unnecessary. Now sometimes when researching Lucina, it's nice when a whole bunch of papers on the same subject come along at once, giving a very different slant on the same area. There's a lot of literature around about childhood obesity, not surprisingly, and I came across three papers that showed very different aspects of how obesity can be tackled. The first one, which was in JAMA Paediatrics, showed that um, an intervention as simple as just providing drinking water for school children might actually make a difference. In New York City, there are a huge number of schools, 1,230 uh, elementary and middle schools serving over a million children. They found um, that during the process of installing water fountains or water jets, as they call them in the States, that they had the opportunity to do a sort of quasi-randomized control trial. The water jets are devices that uh, dispense chilled, oxygenated, clean tap water rapidly at the push of a lever, and this probably makes water drinking more fun than just getting it out of an ordinary tap. So there was no formal randomization process, but in fact the schools with and without water jets were pretty similar, so they thought the comparisons were uh, justified. They were able to assess the standardized body mass index in the children in the schools and actually found a significant reduction in the 40% of the schools that had a water jet compared to others. That was in the actual rate of obesity and overweight. The actual 
reduction in terms of BMI points is very slight, but over such huge numbers it makes a difference. They went further to see why this might be, and they looked specifically at milk drink purchases, of which chocolate milk, which is fairly high calorie, was the most popular. And they found that the purchases of these drinks, which was available in all the schools, uh, were significantly lower when the water jets were installed. So these are small effects, but overall it could be one small, easy and child-friendly way of um, making a slight difference to obesity. It's expensive though, they cost $1,000 each. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there is an increasing tendency amongst adults to use surgery, bariatric surgery, to tackle the problem of severe morbid obesity. This is becoming more and more popular. The results are striking, and even though it is fairly drastic and obviously very invasive, it does seem to achieve significant and substantial weight gains. In paediatrics, we've been less enthusiastic about adopting surgery, but it is becoming more popular, particularly in the United States. A study has been published in the New England Journal of Medicine from five different centers in America that uh, carry out these procedures, and it reports three-year follow-up of 240 adolescents who underwent some form of bariatric surgery. These young people were huge. They were aged between 13 and 19 years, three-quarters were girls, and their weights were between 145 and 156 kilograms. Their mean BMI was 53 kilograms per square meter. Now they only look at the outcomes in those that had the most popular irreversible operations, such as uh, gastric bypass and sleeve gastrectomy, rather than the uh, gastric banding, which is reversible. There wasn't much difference between these two irreversible procedures. They looked at the weight outcomes after three years. The mean weight loss was impressive, 41 kilograms, which counts to a mean of about 27%, and the BMI reduction was a mean of 15 kilograms per square meter. Not surprising, a lot of these very overweight young people had type 2 diabetes, and they were able to confirm remission in 19 out of 20 who had it. There were also significant improvements in blood pressure. They looked at um, biochemical factors such as kidney dysfunction and dyslipidemia. They also importantly looked at weight-related quality of life scores, which is something that is fairly standardized, and found that these greatly improved, as one might expect. However, it wasn't all plain sailing. There were some disadvantages. Um, there were increased rates of micronutrient deficiencies, particularly iron and vitamin B12, which is likely to relate to impaired intestinal absorption. There were some surgical complications and 13% required further surgical procedures for complications such as strictures. There wasn't a control group here, but it seems highly unlikely that this degree of weight loss could be achieved by non-surgical means. There's an editorial alongside this that notes some interesting evidence that surgery not only leads to less calorie intake, but actually alters physiological pathways that leads to obesity in the first place. So in fact, they just don't feel as hungry. However, the editorial warns that this is still fairly short follow-up, only three years, and we'll need at least 10 years before we know whether this uh, has a very long-term benefit for something that's going to last their whole lives. Now, the next paper relating to obesity actually also relates to economics. Readers will be aware that there was a major economic slump in Greece, which started in 2008-2009, and this was fairly devastating um, for a European country. 
quite coincidentally, there were some researchers who were in the middle of doing a long-term growth cohort study, which was intended to provide data for new country-specific growth charts. Instead of just abandoning this, they actually continued their work and turned it into a very interesting description of changes in obesity rates. And this was done in the Athens area, over 1,300 children attending schools between ages 6 to 16 were studied. They had their height and weight measured every six months, and this was between 2009 and 2012. It's a relatively affluent area of Greece, and in fact they had pretty high obesity rates at the outset. They saw the overall prevalence of overweight and obesity, uh, by standard definitions, fall from 43% to 37% in boys, and more so from 33% to 27% in girls. The mean BMIZ scores fell from 0.68 to 0.55, and this was significant, even though numerically it wasn't that great. They also showed a small but non-significant increase in the prevalence of significant underweight. This study didn't set out to gather any data on diet or exercise because that wasn't its point. However, they can say that there were no other anti-obesity interventions going on at the time, so the only real thing that changed over that period and that reversed the previous assumed increasing trend of obesity prevalence was the economic slump itself. Now, an economic slump is not a good thing, and an editorial points out the many bad effects on um, children's health of these sorts of crises. However, it's a unique natural experiment, and it gives evidence that high obesity rates are at least a part the result of modifiable lifestyle factors, and if children cannot, for whatever reason, get access to the same amount of high-calorie food, even if everything else stays the same, then uh, obesity rates in population terms can be seen to fall over a relatively short period of a few years. Mm -hmm.